Uh, let's start with the passage I said I would read to you last night. This is um, from, uh, again, a letter by Keats. Um, this is how he described Shakespeare. Uh, the least of an egoist that it was possible to be, he was nothing in himself, but he was all that others were or that they could become. And again, I, don't, I think this is actually quite relevant to, to what we're talking about here, and it connects it, I think, very much with how this practice um, of questioning, and as we'll look this morning at not knowing, um, is not just about a condition that might lead us to some insight, to some understanding, but a condition that also um, is characteristic of the uh, opening of the imagination um, of allowing uh, us to somehow get more uh, in tune with our creative capacities. Um, again, in the last, the first talk I gave, I suggested that how, in some ways, the response to this question, what is this, or whichever koan we may use, is um, perhaps most, or not most, but at least open to a response that is not in words at all, um, or at least not in a formal sort of uh, declamatory sort of claim to truth, but actually is responded to more appropriately by um, a painting or by a poem or by a work of art of some kind that has its origins not so much in the cognitive faculty of knowing something, but in being freed up to picture or to reveal or to expose an insight. In fact, even if insight is the right word, in fact. And so many of these uh, Zen stories um, seem to uh, point in this way, a, away from the idea that we come up to an, the very notion that we might arrive at an answer to the koan, let alone a correct answer that, some, uh, that uh, is in accord with Buddhist doctrine. But rather it's about um, finding a way of being that is not uh, constrained by such by the, the limits of what can be said, but what can be, uh, in a way, imagined. And in a further letter written in the same year as the passage I just quoted, uh, Keats expands on, on this idea, and he says, as to the poetical character itself, it is not itself. It has no self. It is everything and nothing. It has no character. It enjoys light and shade. It lives in gusto, 
enthusiasm. Um, be it foul or fair, high or low, rich or poor, mean or elevated. It has as much delight in conceiving an Iago as an Imogen, as a male or a female character from one of Shakespeare's plays. What shocks the virtuous philosopher delights the chameleon poet. Now again, what shocks the virtuous philosopher, there is a long uh, tradition, particularly in, in Zen, and you find it also in, in Vajrayana, Buddhism too, um, the, the, uh, the, the teachings and the ways of expressing themselves that we find in, in this tradition are often perceived by the orthodoxy, orthodox Buddhist you know, scholars and priests, as shocking. You can't say that, they say. Um, which I think is indicative of how these traditions uh, very often, not through any deliberate intent, but just by the sheer momentum of human habit, so often tend to end up um, with rather dry, complex, uh, cerebral formulae, and thereby lose touch with the sources of the creative imagination that works more in metaphor and imagery. We see this very clearly in the history of Indian Buddhism. What's striking, although you may not be struck by it unless you look carefully for it, in the early discourses is the Buddha's love of metaphor. Uh, his uh, uh, delight in concrete imagery. Um, take, for example, water imagery runs through the early canon. Um, the Buddha's uh, often using um, uh, examples from the world of the artisan. Even in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, you have him comparing the mindfulness practitioner to a skilled wood-turner, or even to a skilled butcher, or a butcher's assistant who can cut up an animal. And what that points to is not so much um, uh, the privileging of knowledge in the sense of, I know this is the nature of things, but to a kind of know-how, not a know-that, but a know-how. And I think Zen, in a sense, picks up that, uh, that current. Perhaps it recovers that current. And I don't think it's accidental that of uh, all the Buddhist uh, traditions, you only really find in Chan or Zen or Son the integration of the arts. In other words, um, the practice of Chan um, is very often uh, done through the practice of a particular art. And I don't just mean the martial arts, which has become rather fashionable, but rather the actual, the visual arts, the uh, poetic arts, uh, even gardening, tea ceremony, 
there's an engagement with the world that uh, draws very much upon a know-how or skills that are exemplified in ex in a, ineluctably through through the body, uh, through knowing how to use one's hands, uh, no longer confining knowledge uh, to what can be achieved by the mind alone. And so, um, I don't find it's just arbitrary to touch into what Keats uh, is writing. Remember, these letters of Keats are not um, are just written out at speed and sent to his uh, brother and other correspondents. Um, he would never have intended that they ever be published. So we really get a picture here of someone, as it were, he's a young guy, about 21, 22, um, just sort of this spontaneous outpouring of, um, of, of insight. Uh, it's really quite extraordinary, actually. So anyway, going back to um, the formal instructions for this morning, which are not basically disconnected from this at all, but I think phrase it in a more, um, in, 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 in a more pragmatic uh, way. I want to talk about uh, the flip side of questioning. And that is um, not knowing. Uh, again, this is an idea that you'll find if you're familiar with the Chan or the Zen writings in expressions like no mind or no thought. But I think not knowing which suggests something more processual rather than just the absence of thought or the absence of mind, but a consciously cultivated um, not knowing. So let's see how basically this works um, or is implicit uh, with any act of questioning. Um, if you don't know something, if you really don't know something, uh, only then can you, in all sincerity, ask a question about it? Um, if you don't know, for example, where Newton Abbott is in relation to Guy House, then you can say, where is Newton Abbott? Um, and in uttering that question, where is Newton Abbott, you are tacitly affirming, I don't know where Newton Abbott is. Now, we often tend to forget that. But what is helpful here in this question, what is this, is to remind ourselves with just as much uh, uh, emphasis that I don't know what this is. I don't know. One Korean uh, son teacher called Sung San um, coined this phrase that's become quite widespread called don't know mind. Only don't know mind uh, is how he would uh, state this. And uh, this, I feel, is a very um, uh, important part of this practice. And in fact, what we might enjoy doing um, periodically through the day is replacing the 
question, what is this, with the phrase, I don't know. I don't know. And rather than saying, what is this, and then, as I suggested, somehow um, just resting in the silence that follows the posing of that question, what is this, and then letting oneself feel in the body that uh, puzzlement, curiosity, bewilderment, perplexity, whatever we call it, likewise um, saying to oneself, I don't know, you know, implicitly, I don't know what this is. And in the same way, letting oneself just um, stay or remain uh, in the aftermath of that pronouncement to feel what it's like in one's flesh, in one's bones, to not know, to be in a state of bewilderment, of unknowing. Now we live in a society, and I suspect most societies have been like this, in which we privilege knowledge over ignorance, in which we privilege knowing over not knowing. And we might also have noticed, you know, in so many social situations, for example, um, that we, 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 we can almost feel a... I, well, let's talk about myself. Uh, I often feel a kind of... Um, a kind of almost inner physical push or urge to be the one who knows. And if I'm having a discussion, let's say, at a gathering of some kind, a, you know, a party, or even worse, in a sort of, you know, philosophical discussion group, or even worse than that, a Buddhist discussion group, <laughs> where I'm supposed to be the expert, then there's a part of me that I notice viscerally is highly committed and uh, invested in being the one who knows about Buddhism. And I get a little bit irked if somebody somehow doesn't really respect that properly. <laughs> but underpinning that um, whole uh, experience is the extent to which we um, are very uh, concerned to know. It somehow gives us a... Uh, a sense of, 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 of validation, of confirmation, a sense somehow of legitimacy. Because unknowing and uncertainty and doubt at some level are very, uh, very unsettling. They are opening up, as it were, cracks or fissures in the uh, in, in, in the certainties that we feel that we are certain of, that we are comfortable with, um, and being exposed as having got something wrong, uh, having made a mistake, uh, particularly in something we might have published, for example, um, can, be very, uh, uh, can be very painful and can be very um, destabilizing. Uh, it can almost take the wind out of your sails. You can somehow feel a kind of descent into a, an almost uh, abysmal state of being foolish. This happened to me recently, actually. Uh, 
I was taken to task by the Pali Thought Police. <laughs> it is actually in the latest book. Um, over, uh, you know, a way I translated a phrase in Pali. But what was interesting, I mean, I mean, the person was probably right, but what was interesting um, was that I didn't just take that as a kind of, um, you know, a, you know just, just a neutral piece of information. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I won't do that again. But it really sort of was like a knife to the belly. Um, very uncomfortable. And those moments, I think, are very helpful because they... Um, they expose the extent to which we are invested, our ego is invested in being right, in having things sorted out, uh, in, in knowing something with pretty much uh, complete confidence and certainty. But this practice, and I suspect pretty much every kind of um, practice that is concerned with really getting to the core of what it is to be alive, to be human, has to risk and be open to uh, the profound extent to which we are ignorant of what is going on. And in the Western philosophical tradition, of course, we find this, I think, particularly strongly in the work of Kant, Immanuel Kant, and then after him, Schopenhauer. Um, Kant uh, recognized how um, uh, the extent to which we can know is utterly constrained by the structure of the body and the brain and the mind. Uh, and that actually uh, prevents us from, uh, from knowing probably 99% of reality. And yet we often go around thinking that we've nearly got it sorted out and cracked. Um, the example I gave yesterday about the Big Bang, it's impossible, well not impossible, it's extremely difficult to think that something could happen and not happen in time um, or space. In other words, time and space are what Kant called categories of perception. They're like the kind of, they're like a sort of fish, fisherman's net um, that is necessary for our consciousness, who we are, to actually know anything. We cannot know things um, uh, you know, outside the perceptions or the apperceptions of time and space. It's just a constraint, it's a limitation. And yet what quantum mechanics and uh, and what astrophysics shows us is that when we approach these huge questions of the origins of the universe and so on, we can't actually do that within uh, the space-time frame. We're, we're, we're limited by that. Um, in the same way, if you make a rather crude example, that... Um, my cats at home can never understand differential calculus. <laughs> well, okay, I'm just making an, an, a very humble, uneducated guess. But, well, okay, my cats, for example, can't figure out something that 
frankly, I thought evolution should have enabled cats to do by now, is that he can't figure out that it's a bad idea to walk through any door that happens to be open. In, cats never get the idea that the door might be closed afterwards. And there's millions of examples. I learn a lot from observing my cats. And the thing I learn the most is that there's an area of ignorance that um, envelops the cat uh, that I can never ever uh, uh, override. I can never somehow teach my cat certain things. Uh, it's just not going to happen. And that's not because the cat is stupid, it's because the cat is a cat. And, <laughs> and that's the same with us. It's not because we're necessarily stupid, but because we're human, there are certain things that we, ain't, we just ain't going to know. So this, I think, suggests a certain humility. But on the other hand, I feel that this uh, acknowledgement and even uh, cultivation of not knowing and questioning is um, very much about being willing to be open to uh, the fact that the world in a very real and very deep sense, is profoundly mysterious and strange. And again, that's something that our ego is constantly, uh, well, has probably evolved to override. I mean, it's not much help in the struggle for survival to sit still and say, wow, this is a totally mysterious thing that's going on here. <laughs> it's much better to know, I know where the food is, and I know where the dangers are, and I know where the enemy is hiding behind that hill. It's that kind of knowledge that will afford you survival advantages, not uh, being able to sit on the savannah and say, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, such a person is unliable to survive, to pass on their genetic materials. <laughs> so what we're afforded in the privileges of uh, a relatively uh, uh, safe and prosperous and privileged uh, world such as that of Western Europe uh, is the freedom uh, to be able to ask these questions. Um, to be able to make use of our consciousness as it has evolved, probably for very different reasons, and to um, open ourselves to the fact that we don't know. And this is not experienced in Chan or in Christian mysticism as, as, a, as a failing or a weakness. It's actually the very opposite. It's what allows us to actually become perhaps more, um, more, more honest, more truthful, and at some extent more humble. And this allows, I feel, the world to be open to us in a way that's not narrowed and restricted and defined by what I can know and how much knowledge I have about it, and how great an expert I am on this, that, and the other. But it's to allow ourselves to, um, uh, to, uh, to deepen what we might call a sort of um, agnosticism, a not knowing. Agnostic means not knowing. But this is a kind of deep agnosticism. And I think this deep agnosticism is very similar to 
what Keats is talking about, this <coughs> negative capability. This when one can be with mysteries, uncertainties and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. And this is the quality that, as Keats says, Shakespeare possessed so enormously. And that wasn't um, uh, a weakness or a failure on Shakespeare's part, it was his greatest gift. Because when we allow ourselves that openness, when we cultivate that not knowing, that questioning, that being with mysteries, uncertainties and doubts, we're also liberating, we're liberating ourselves from the constraints of knowledge and certainty and conviction, which often has the consequence of narrowing our lives, and it has the consequence also of anesthetizing ourselves. In other words, an, it's an anesthetic, and I'm taking that word very, very literally, an anesthetic, rather than an aesthetic experience, um, our certainties, our knowledge, our convictions, our so, so on and so forth, actually are anesthetic. They dull us, they numb us. They might give us a lot of advantages in being good at our job and all those things, but they as a, as, a, as a side effect, uh, they're anesthetic. In other words, they dull us. They render the world uh, somehow flat and opaque and uninteresting and boring. And for me, one of the really um, central uh, uh, aspects of, of mindfulness or this kind of Zen questioning or any kind of comparable discipline is one that's not just there to grant us knowledge. In fact, arguably, that's a rather dangerous track to go down to get more knowledge, better knowledge, ultimate knowledge. Uh, that's, I feel, a bit dodgy. But to actually open up our capacity for a deeper aesthetic experience, what I spoke of yesterday as the sublime, uh, and this way of being in the world um, may not provide us with the comforts of certitude. You know more and you're more sure of things. But the, um, uh, the, the rather overwhelming sense of being um, a relatively insignificant part of something that infinitely outstrips our capacity for representation. And therein, I feel, lie the sources of imagination, of creativity, of spontaneity. Um, and as we'll look at in the final talk I give on Thursday, I also think it opens up um, uh, richer capacities for ethical intuitions. But I'm going to stop there. Um, I'm sorry this has been a bit rambling, but the, the point is the, the, the point is really this try today to come back every now and again to uh, I don't know and try to f allow that to percolate into your nervous system so that you feel it in the body, you feel it in your arms and legs. It's a, it's a felt sense rather than a concept.
And again, just, just take, let that take you where it will. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.